This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3208 for Wednesday the 18th of November 2020. Today's show is entitled, The Pork Work Show, Wacom with Pinebook, and Thoughts on the DMCA Takedown. It is hosted by Pork Work, and is about 19 minutes long, and carries a clean flag. The summary is, I got a Wacom tablet to use with my Pinebook, and then share my thoughts on the recent DMCA Takedown. This episode of HPR is brought to you by Archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Good day, good listener of Hacker Public Radio, and welcome to another installment of the Paul Quirk Show. If you're keeping score, this is my third episode with the new name, but of course, there are several good episodes I recorded for HPR before I came up with the clever name for my show for you to enjoy. As I'm going to continue this on a fairly regular basis, I'm going to refer to some of my older shows now and then, but I'll do my best to give enough information so that nobody should need to go back to an old episode to understand a new one. To start this show, I'd like to tell you about a couple of updates. First, the latest updates on my Pinebook Pro, which I've named Anne, has corrected the problem in LibreOffice where the fonts were white on a white background. That's been fixed now, and the fonts all show up in the menu white on a dark background, which makes Anne the perfect LibreOffice machine. I've installed FSUAE, an Amiga emulator, and Anne, the Pinebook, emulates Amiga perfectly well. I finally got my well-deserved Lemmings fix on Anne, though my Bluetooth mouse was misbehaving a little bit, and I don't know if it was the mouse or the Pinebook, but I ended my frustration by switching back to my wireless trackball, which is a superior pointing device for playing games like Lemmings anyway. Now, I've been using Anne as my daily driver for over two months now, which means I set up end-to-end encryption for my email using the gpg command with the full generate key option. This worked without any problems at all. I had some PDF documents I had to fill out and submit. Normally, I'd use a PDF editor like Foxit PDF Reader, which is available for Linux and does an excellent job. There is no ARM version of Foxit, but part of the standard Manjaro installation on my Pinebook included a program called Ocular, now that's spelt with a K. Ocular does a lot of what Foxit did, but I ran into a problem when I tried to paste in the image of my signature. See, what I had done in the past is I scanned in my signature as a bitmap and turned that into a stamp in Foxit. With Adobe Zone products, I could add this scan signature as part of the process of signing a PDF. I couldn't do that with Ocular. I tried opening up the PDFs in LibreOffice, but that just really messed up the formatting. Then there was GIMP, which could open the PDF just fine without screwing up the formatting, and I could just have pasted in my signature as a layer and then flattened and exported the file. But drawing text boxes with GIMP is less than optimal for filling out uh, PDFs. So I went back to Ocular, 
and use the draw tool to try to draw in my signature using my trackball and then my mouse, but the result looked like a five-year-old trying to forge my signature. I tried using the touchpad, but that was worse. That's when I started thinking to myself, if I had a touchscreen computer, I could probably just draw my signature right on the screen. That's when I took the idea one step further and thought, why not get a Wacom tablet? After all, I do like to draw, and I do enjoy doing photo editing, and a Wacom drawing tablet could certainly improve my workflow in that process. Imagine if I could just use it to fill out and sign PDFs by hand. Would a proprietary piece of hardware like the Wacom tablet, which clearly indicates in its product detail page that it was made to work just with Windows and Mac, would this work with my Pinebook Pro? There was no indication that it would work with Linux at all, much less an ARM-based Linux computer, but I was feeling lucky that day. In my bid to support both my local economy and to improve my own computing experience, I headed off to the local computer store and bought the last Wacom Intuos they had in stock. Mine came in a color known as pistachio. But to my eye, the color isn't anywhere near what I know pistachio to be. Pistachio is a slightly desaturated green, while this is definitely more along the lines of aero blue or mint tulip, tending more towards the blue end of cyan. Uh, you would think that a company who designs drawing tablets for artists would at least pick the right name for the color of their product, but then again we are talking about one of a thousand shades that exist between green and blue that are being picked by marketing executives. I think if this tablet was open sourced, I'd fork it just to get the name of the tablet color right. Back to the task at hand. I connected my shiny new pistachio but not pistachio Wacom Intuos tablet into my Pinebook Pro and it worked. I don't mean it worked kind of, I mean it worked exactly as I thought it would. Hovering the pen over the tablet, I could move the mouse around the screen as various points on the pad corresponded with the points on my screen. Tapping the tablet with the pen represented a mouse click. And when I had the freehand line selected in ocular, I could draw and write anywhere with ease. It took a few minutes to adjust and get comfortable with this new way of working. But once I had my bearings, it became very easy just to sign my name on the line just as I would on a piece of paper, print the document to a PDF file, and send it away. I'd like to take a moment in this show to say just how impressed I am that this worked as well as it did. In the past, Linux didn't work so well with proprietary hardware that didn't explicitly state that it was compatible with Linux, but here we are in the year 2020 where I am using a computer and operating system that some might consider are at the fringes of what is considered a laptop computer and is removed even further from the mainstream by running Manjaro on ARM. I just bought a closed source proprietary product and it worked exactly as it should have in an open source application on an open source computer running an open source operating system. Perhaps Wacom tablets are more popular in the Linux community than I thought. And maybe it's me who's been living under a rock, scanning in things I've written or drawn when I could have just easily drawn whatever I wanted directly with a Wacom tablet. Whatever the case may be, I can state with confidence that Ocular will be my go-to for filling out PDF forms from now on. Since I use encrypted email using PGP to send these PDFs, I see no point in digitally signing my PDFs with a cryptographic signature. 
Now, it soon became clear to me that using this tablet to fill out and sign PDFs in Ocular really only scratches the surface of what this tablet could do, so I loaded up GIMP to really unleash its potential. First, under the Edit menu, I went into Configure Input Devices, where GIMP recognized my Wacom Intuos pad and pen. I changed the mode for both of these to, say, Screen. After that, I selected the Paintbrush tool, and under the Dynamics menu, I could then select pressure, opac opacity, and uh, pressure size. Uh, see, the Wacom tablet pen provides 4,096 different levels of pressure sensitivity. And so by selecting one of these, either the size or the opacity of the lines I draw are determined by how much pressure I apply when using the pen on the drawing pad. There are two buttons on the side of the pen. The button closer to the nib allows me to grab the image I'm working on and scroll it around the screen, which is useful if I'm working on an image or editing a photo when I'm zoomed in, uh, while the button above that works like the right mouse button and will bring up the contextual menu. I'm going to upload a picture with this podcast show notes so you can see some of my first scribbles I made in GIMP with this tablet. As a bonus, this tablet can connect to my Pinebook Pro through Bluetooth, so it doesn't even need to use up a valuable USB port. Meanwhile, I updated my desktop computer to Ubuntu 2004, but now it seems to want to lock up every so often. I think it's time I put a proper NVMe SSD in my desktop machine anyway, so I think I'll just install that and put a clean install of 2004 on it. However, I must admit to neglecting my desktop since getting the Pinebook Pro, and I am considering switching my desktop to Manjaro as well. Well, what do you think of that idea? You can reach me on the Fediverse at paul at cloud.peakwork.com if you'd like to have a conversation with me about this and to discuss this further. Moving on to the news. As I'm sure you're all aware, GitHub removed a YouTube download tool in response to a DMCA takedown notice. I personally find this somewhat amusing since my computer needs to be able to download and store streaming content temporarily from video streaming services in order for that to work. Now, this is a battle that dates back to the early days of video cassette recorders and even tape recorders. What, what it boils down to is that trade organizations, like the Recording Industry Association of America, wants to have absolute control over who can record what and when. We in Canada have a similar organization called the Canadian Recording Industry, which had long been funded in part with an extra tax placed on blank video cassettes, audio cassettes, CDRs, and DVDRs over the years. And this is known as the private copying levy. Currently, the tariffs for each unit of CDR, CDRW, CDR audio, and CDRW audio is 29 cents. This annoyed me back when I used CDRs to store my own content, but as what often happens when something like a levy is introduced with the best of intentions in a country that values individual rights, this ended up backfiring on the music industry. You see, since Canadians are paying a levy on each blank CD, for example, it is expected that Canadians have paid for the right to copy whatever music they want by virtue of the existence of this very levy. So for a brief period in 2004 and 2005, the peer-to-peer -peer sharing of music files online in Canada was explicitly legal. 
To my knowledge, there is still no clear law against the personal non-profit use of copyrighted material in Canada, though I am not a lawyer and therefore suggest you do your own research before deciding to set up your own peer-to-peer sharing of copyrighted material. Some of my colleagues fear how such a takedown decision might affect us here in Canada, pointing out that we tend to follow the United States when it comes to laws. And then I remind them that we are using the metric system while the U.S. is still using the imperial system of feet and inches. This means that while Canadian industries try to coordinate with industries in the U.S., this really only means that being able to do metric conversion calculations is an important additional skill to have for anyone working in the trades. So we use the American wire gauge for wire sizes, and we will call a 2x4x8 piece of lumber a 2x4x8 with the understanding that this will be 2 inches by 4 inches by 8 feet long. And even things like our electrical code is changed every three years to keep it up to date, but also to harmonize it with American electrical codes. But we have a Charter of Rights and Freedoms that has important differences from the American Bill of Rights, which actually serves to provide Canadian citizens with far greater individual protection. This was illustrated with a couple of precedent-setting rulings on who gets to spend how much to gain political influence. For example, many were shocked by the U.S. Supreme Court's 2010 decision in Citizen United versus FEC where limits on what corporations and unions spend on TV commercials seeking to influence political campaigns were overturned. What is less known is that six years prior, so that's in the year 2004, the Supreme Court of Canada found in Harper versus Canada that while third-party spending limits during political campaigns does infringe on the right to freedom of expression, that infringement is justified in order to prevent the affluent from dominating political discourse, leading to the rich being allowed to buy dominance that would undermine our charter-protected right to the guarantee of meaningful participation for all elections. Of course, This doesn't stop the influence of American media from spreading across the border and confusing some of my fellow Canadians about their rights. To be fair, I'm not suggesting that Canada is the perfect country. Far from it. We have a lot of room for improvement. However, when it comes to something like the music industry taking down a YouTube download tool, I really don't believe our equivalent to the RIAA, which is the CRIA, would have the same power here. Now, to be clear, I am very much in favor of supporting our musicians. What I'm not in favor of are these fat cat industry middlemen that take more than their fair share, painting fans of music as potential criminals and perpetuating the us-versus-them mentality. I do not believe the purveyors of fear who would have us believe that so-called illegal file trading is to blame for a dramatic reduction in career opportunities for Canadian artists and the availability of new Canadian music are really that interested in protecting our culture. To me, this translates to fewer career opportunities for opportunistic middlemen whose only talent is to instill fear and profit off of levies. Our own Stompin' Tom Connors was famous for boycotting the industry-backed Juno Awards in protest of Junos given to expatriate Canadians, demonstrating that the organizations that claim to represent the Canadian music industry have only their own interests in mind. 
The last concert I saw before COVID-19 shut everything down included The Spoons and 5440, both great Canadian bands I grew up with. Sold out concerts here in my home city of Oshawa, Ontario, both doing very well and still performing in the year 2020 in spite of all the music of theirs that was supposedly illegally recorded onto blank, blank cassette tapes and CDs by people just like me. I doubt that either of these bands saw much, if any, of that levy. If you ask me, I'd say that in the year 2020, the Canadian music scene makes some of the best music in the world. One of my favorites today is The Dead South. In spite of the allegations made against Danny Kenyon, but hey, that's an entirely different topic. I believe Canada has some real world-class musical talent with a vibrant industry that generates significantly better music than the pre-manufactured crap big corporate record labels are crapping out. Of course, that's just my opinion. So since we're talking about music, I think it's that time of the show to enjoy some classical music from the Creative Commons. In this episode, I'm going to play a song for you from the Goldberg Variations. The Goldberg Variations are a set of 30 variations by Johann Sebastian Bach that were first published in 1741. This work is considered to be an important example of the variation form and was named after Johann Gottlieb Goldberg, who might have been the first performer. What you're about to hear is the second song in this collection, as performed by the talented Kimiko Ishizaka. Enjoy. That's all I have for you for this episode of the Paul Quirk Show. I created this entire podcast on my Pinebook Pro. I do admit that this show is a little shorter, but hopefully next time I'll have more things to talk about with you. Until then, 
Please remember to drive safe and have fun. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.